Welcome to CoachCast from IECL by GrowthOps. CoachCast is a source of knowledge, insight, and wisdom for coaches and leaders looking to go further. In our podcasts, we take an immersive dive into the minds of extraordinary people and bring you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and influential coaches and thought leaders. In today's podcast, our host, Renee Holder, will be speaking with Audrey McGibbon. Audrey has been a psychologist since 1990, with first-hand insights into the stresses and strains of life as a senior executive and the impact of leaders' behaviors on teams' well-being and organizations' performance. Audrey has been an executive coach to more than 500 leaders over the past 18 years. She is the co-founder of Eek and Sense and the co-author of the Global Leadership Wellbeing Survey, an evidence-based tool used by leaders and their teams to enable well-being insights and actions. Since 2015, Audrey has conducted research into the well-being profiles of more than 5,000 leaders using this tool. I'm sure you're going to enjoy today's podcast. Let's welcome them both. Audrey, welcome. There seem to be a lot of misconceptions about well-being and varying definitions. How do you define well-being? Thanks very much, um, first of all, Renee, for inviting me along here today. It's my very great pleasure. Um, I think it's a terrific first question because it's where we get into a lot of hot water. There are, I mean, well-being is such a... Sorry, let me say, on the upside, I think because well-being is such a common part of the everyday parlance now, it's not a word that anybody stops to really um, uh, feel any element of surprise about. It's in our everyday vernacular. But therein also lies the problem that we don't have a common shared understanding of what it means. And I do think that in the layperson's mind, it probably conjures up somewhere between an emphasis on physical health. Um, so the yoga, apples, uh, smoking cessation, uh, stepathons, that sort of thing, um, and uh, mental ill health. So I think those two components, if we were to survey a man and woman on the street, that's probably, I think, what we'd get back as the layperson's definition. And... I guess the problem with that is that it's only a snapshot, really, of what we're trying to get at. And going as far back as the the 50s, 1950s, the World Health Organization has defined well-being um, as being a complete state of physical, mental and social well-being. And what they were really getting at there is it's not merely the absence of ill health, but it's, it's a positive thing. It's an aspirational piece. And I think that that's not really quite there in organisations at the moment um, in the workplaces. And certainly um, I think there's a way to go in in running an education programme around helping um, leaders and employees alike understand that well-being is a really slippery, dynamic thing. It's not, you know, once you've got it, you can have it forever. It's multidimensional. It shifts, it ebbs and flows. And one of my sort of favourite images is to sort of invite people to think about well-being as a, as a delicate balancing act, a seesaw. And on one end of the seesaw, we've got all the demands and challenges that are coming at us in life. And on the other end of the seesaw, we have these 
um, all the the assets or resources that we have at our disposal, whether on our insides so or our physical energy, our emotional energy, our mental energy, phys- um, spiritual energy, all those things coming to life, and and that well being is that lovely. Um, sweet spot where the seesaw is in balance. But it doesn't take much to knock it slightly out of balance. And you spoke about the layperson's definition or interpretation of the word well-being. What are you seeing in organisations in terms of the way that organisations are defining well-being? Um, yeah, well, sort of picking up on my earlier comments, I think one of the things that that is um, prevalent is the sort of over-medicalized emphasis. And I have to be clear, obviously I'm not going to sit here and say physical health isn't important. It's an absolute bedrock. Mm. And I'm certainly not going to say that the mental health statistics that we hear so much about shouldn't be front and center. Both those things should be, they are foundational pieces, but they seem to be um, very reactive and very focused on the negative. So smoking cessation, you know, it's about um, minimizing um, obesity. Uh, we're concerned about the rise of the mental ill health epidemic that's more really pandemic across the world. So I think in short, I'd say that well-being in organizations is really, I think, being defined more by the stats of the focus on the one in five who are struggling, right. you know, they've got a diagnosed ill health. Okay, yeah. Um, and we believe that those are the stats in Australia today that at any one point in time, one in five employees is suffering from a diagnosed, clinically, clinically diagnosed mental ill health. Mm. And then you put the physical ill health on top of that. And so I think that in organisations, we're really focusing on well-being as being for the people who are vulnerable and at need And whilst I think that we must do more to support and um, help those who are in crisis, we've got a long way to go there, it does also beg the question of, well, of all of the others, how many of those people are truly well in that sense of flourishing and having exactly the right level of assets to meet the resources that are, um, to meet the challenges that are coming at them in life. And so there's this piece around the frozen middle Okay. Um, what do you mean by the frozen middle? So the frozen middle is the majority of people who we would see coming through coaching rooms and onto programs who they're not unwell in the sense of being clinically um, meeting the criteria, but they are hanging in there by the skin of their teeth. Mm. You know, they're, they're on a good day, they're coping, but they're probably showing preclinical symptoms that if left unaddressed are highly likely to morph into something more serious. And unfortunately, the data that we've got and the data that's coming through from other organisations is showing that that's a growing uh, majority. So to put figures around that, we've got one in five being diagnosed as being uh, suffering from a mental ill health condition. There might be one in five who are flourishing and thriving and for whom we can say they have high levels of well-being. But there is a, a three in five who, you know, on a good day, they're mm, okay. Mm, mm. And so what I'd love to see is a shift in organisations from thinking about well-being as being the province of the vulnerable and the needy 
to being something that is a human issue that is relevant for the five and five employees. I want to see it plucked out of health, safety and well-being mm. and stitched into the very fabric of the organisation and the workplace for everyone. As we, you were, you and I both work in in, in organisations and and we see this sort of fast-changing, competitive business landscape that business and organisations are operating in. And I don't know about you, but but I see them asking us and looking for ways to um, unlock more of a sustained performance. Um, and so, you know, I wonder from your perspective, what is that link between a focus on well-being for five out of five and improve performance? How long have we got, Renee? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, where to start with this? Um, I think in the olden days, there was a very sort of dominant view that if you wanted to progress in your career and if you were um, intent on holding down a complex role, a professional role that carried with it a lot of responsibility, that well-being was something that not necessarily you had to give up in its entirety, but that, that you would make some trade-offs on in order to progress your career and to do well, to be successful. And, you know, perhaps there was a time in organisational life where that was the correct approach to take. But I think anybody who's thinking that way today in the era of constant disruption, where the only thing that's certain is change itself, I think that that's a, a, a path to unsustainable um, performance. And I also don't think it's a path to success. Mm. So I've, um, I've, I've been on record previously having a bit of an issue with the, the lovely Elon Musk oh, yes. and his uh, declarations that we should all be working 100-hour weeks um, in order to achieve our mission, which, of course, in his case is to you know, see society develop on Mars. And, I, you know, there's so many aspects of, of him and his approach that I love, but sadly I don't think he's going to get to Mars because I think the way that he's working and the way that he's leading his organisation is really unsustainable and counterproductive. So I'm going a bit off track here. And the man does have, you know, $32 billion more than I do, so <laughs> perhaps I shouldn't be arguing with him. But when I look to the future and I think, how likely is it that he's going to be successful? I, I don't feel, unfortunately, that he is going to be successful because I see it as a fallacy. The, the working harder um, is no longer the path to being successful. And I think that leaders who are looking after themselves, and we'll come on and maybe talk about, you know, what that truly means, mm. but leaders who are grounded and centred and, and able to deal with this constant disruption and constant change and the way that they lead organisations and, and create the right environment for other people to um, not just survive but thrive in those environments, they are the sorts of leaders and they are the sorts of organisations that are going to uh, go the distance and be really successful. We have Simon Sinek talking about the difference between the finite game and the infinite game, mm. and that leadership is the um, the determinant of whether we we're playing an infinite game or a game that's going to come to an end. And we know that so many organisations have much shorter lifespans these days, i.e. they go out of business. And why do they go out of business? It's not for the lack of working hard, 
but um, are they sufficiently centered, grounded, focused, visionary? Are they sufficiently creative and agile? And there's a lot of research around to show that those are the predictors of the future. And in order to be able to do those things, you've got to be able to pause, stop, reflect, have a breath, recharge, mm-hmm. replenish, recover, rest, dare I say, all sort of potentially quite old fashioned concepts. But they are the things that are setting the um, the organisations who are going to have longevity and successful um, development over the years ahead from the ones who aren't going to be around. Fascinating. And and your your mention a moment ago of of Elon Musk and his way of working just got me thinking about as leaders. Um, you know, we have our definition of flourishing. You used the word flourishing a moment ago, and whether that's the same as somebody else's definition of flourishing. What are your thoughts on that? I think the English language is a is a terrible. Um, vehicle mm. with which to express ourselves and it and with any label comes multiple different interpretations but I, I, th- I the thing I like about either definition of flourishing is it has something positive and aspirational around it it's something that's got an upbeat energy mm. and I think one of the roles of leaders um, today is to create positive energy in a world that you know is is um potentially going to hell in a handbasket on some days <laughs> is what we feel like. So anybody that can inspire uh, not some sort of deluded Pollyanna version of, you know, positive energy, but something that people can relate to and, and feel is um, worthy of their energy, their focus, their efforts that they can believe in. Mm. So I think that that's part of the flourishing. So I don't, I don't know if I've answered your question there, mm. Renee, but... Mm. And I was thinking, I was probably thinking a little bit more about... Um, a leader's definition than being uh, interpreted by their team or by the organisation, you know, that they sort of demonstrate a 100-hour week and that might be okay for them, but then what does their team or their organisation read into that about, um, you know, whether that actually is the, <laughs> you know, the lifestyle that's um, well, admired I, I mean, around here? I don't want it to be a Musk beat-up no, session. No, no, but, but, but I do think about what must it be like to work in the organisation mm. and have your um, high-profile CEO on record saying we must all be working 100-hour weeks. Mm. You know, what does it feel like when it comes around to, I don't know, 7pm on a Friday night and you want to clock off? And where does family fit in there? Where does um, sleep and health and fitness? So I think I think you're right, you know, mm. what, what a leader sees as being positive and flourishing. And we do have to be careful about that because it's um, not necessarily what everybody wants. Okay. I think the other comment I'd make before we move on from this is around how there's this link between stress levels and performance. And low stress levels um, are not conducive to high levels of performance, you know. But yeah. but gone are the days where we, you know, wander into an office and go, ho-hum, I'm going to be so bored today, nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, for, mo- for most people, that's, that's not necessarily true of everyone, but for most people it's we're being... You know, it's the drinking from the fire hose. We, we're spoiled for choice. There's so much that's competing for our attention and, and, and our demands. Yeah. So it's not weird. Under stress is not really an issue for most people these days, but they're having too much stress. And, and, the, and the optimal level of stress, stress is where we feel enough to kind of have a bit of adrenaline and yeah. a bit of focus and a bit of energy. But if we don't... Um, 
uh, channel that and we are constantly in a state of heightened adrenaline and, and so many things competing for our attention and scarce, scarce resources, then that's the set of conditions that over time leads to us feeling exhausted and fatigued and then that leads to burnout and after burnout, we, you know, disease and, and ultimately death without being too melodramatic about it. Mm. So we have to get this balance right. Um, about the amount of stress that there is in our life without demonising stress. I mean, stress is, is a good thing to a point. And so in that environment that you you were so so well describing just then, I'm wondering why then is is a focus on resilience <laughs> not not just enough? Not, why is that not enough? Yeah, well, I think um, a lot of organisations and maybe even some individuals and leaders do think it's enough. So okay. we, we, you yeah. know... I don't, and I'll come on to that in a moment. <laughs> uh, but one of the responses to the really high stress levels has been, well, we just need to make our people more resilient. Mm. So, you know, if we have tough minds and we have lots of grit and stamina and we're just got, you know, can be mentally tough and hang in there, it'll be fine. But for me, that that um, sounds awfully aligned to the three and five frozen middle. Right, okay. The people mm. who are hanging in there. So, yeah, we... we can, of course, build resilience. And in part, that's a really good thing to do. But resilience isn't, high levels of resilience aren't the same as well-being. High levels of well-being, that's one point I'd make. And the other, I guess, um, deeper issue I've got with putting all our eggs in the resilience basket is that where we're asking people to become more resilient to compensate for bad systems and processes or bad leadership. So I'm sure there might be some people listening in in their capacity as coaches who will be able to relate to this. Mm. But when you take a brief as a coach where the brief from the organisation is around, oh, just, you know, Renee would really, you know, benefit from building up her resilience. Oh, tell, tell me why that is. Oh, well, you know, there's been some issues with her co-workers or, you know, blah, 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 blah. And... And over time, as the coach, you deduce, actually, it's really got very little to do with Renee's resilience. It's the system or the organisation or the workplace or the team or the company or the bosses that are surrounding Renee mm. where the issue is. But that's a much harder systemic set of things to face into. And so poor old Renee and her coach are briefed with the task of just make Renee more resilient. Mm. And so, I mean, it's a bit simplistic, um, and, and dramatised for today's purposes. But that's the issue that I've got with the sort of uh, resilience movement. Not that resilience is a bad thing, but that it's, um, it's being used in lieu of taking a more uh, complex systemic approach to addressing other shortcomings. And so what I'm, what I'm hearing and what you're describing there is, is almost like an approach to, to the individual being responsible solely responsible and for the, the, by building up their resilience, you know, that will we'll cure all of those, those issues. But what, what you're describing there, of course, is, as you said, what coaches hear every day in, in, their, um, in their engagements is that, of course, it's more complex and, and needs to be addressed systemically. Yeah. I came across a lovely analogy the other day um, about uh, likening well-being to a barrel full of apples. Okay. Where the individuals in the barrel 
uh, sorry, the, the apples in the barrel were equivalent to individual employees. And mm. of course, what we want are shiny, crisp apples that are being, you know, that have been well looked after and um, are all, all lovely and fresh. But you have to consider, you know, the uh, the barrel that they're in, so the workplace, the organisation, the culture, mm. but also the effect of apples on one another. And and then we had a bit of fun with this analogy, saying, oh, it gets even more um, gross when you think about a punnet of strawberries because yeah. you know what happens if there's a mouldy strawberry in there. Well, and particularly yeah. if it's a big mouldy strawberry, it <laughs> spreads very quickly. Yeah. Um, and so we were thinking, oh, well, if the leader is the big mouldy strawberry, then <laughs> that's not much fun, is it? So, mm. you know, fruit is an analogy, but uh, well-being is contagious mm. and the well-being of one individual, uh, you you may well have experienced this yourself, you know, working in a team where how one individual shows up has an impact on everybody else's emotions, on everybody else's enjoyment or satisfaction, mm. on everybody mm. else's energy levels. Yes. Um, and so that like can be contagion. from a team member. Like a contagion. Though yeah. that's, that's exactly right. The well-being yeah. effect, the contagion effect. So when you're working with leaders and they don't know themselves very well, and they're also not aware of those multiple dimensions of well-being, you know, well beyond mm. resilience mm. we've just spoken about. In your experience, what what is the consequence? And I know you've you've alluded to a few of them already, but could you expand on what you see as as the consequences for either the individual or or those around mm. them when they don't have that level of awareness? Yeah, so one of one of the common things that we would see is uh, an executive saying, "Yeah, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm okay," mm-hmm. and that is, and and they may genuinely um, believe that. And to some extent, then who who are we to argue? Well being is a very subjective thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a coach, you've got to learn to kind of dig under the surface, as you know, around. Mm-hmm. Well, if somebody says fine, what what does that really mean? Um, but what I'm getting at here is that leaders can just develop entrenched habits. So they can be accustomed to getting less than five hours sleep. They can be accustomed to getting up and into the office at you know 6 a.m. to get a head start on the day. And they get their work done before the team comes in at 8.30. And then they do this and then they do that. And, and, and all of a sudden that becomes their norm. Mm-hmm. Or over time, actually, it becomes their norm. And it becomes so normalized for them, it doesn't occur to them that it might be suboptimal or doing them harm or um, not sustainable. Right. And so I think that leaders can be a little bit fearful to look at the habits and patterns that in many ways have contributed to them becoming successful. Their work ethic is one of the most common ones Mm. that people will say, you know, I've worked really hard to get here. And yet in this era that we now live in where there don't seem to be very many boundaries where you could work 24-7, um, the work ethic becomes a potential uh, downside or a risk that if they don't manage that can be their undoing. Mm. So I think one thing that we could do as coaches is to um, help leaders confront what they might be fearful of in changing some habits. Okay. And then the other thing I think is that leaders can have some blind spots. Well, we can all have blind spots, but blind spots around our own well-being. Mm. And we find that when we um, get to do some work with them and really focus on their well-being and kind of bring that into focus a lot more sharply, one of the things that then happens 
is that they go, oh my God, that was amazing. This is so important. I've developed all these new habits. Then one of the other things that they can do is then insist that their team um, run with exactly the same habits. So I had a, right. a, a leader contact me the other day saying, oh, that was, uh, you know, fantastic stuff that we did. And I had such a breakthrough. It was amazing for me. So now I've insisted my whole team come to the gym with me at lunchtimes, <laughs> 12 o'clock on the dot every day. And I just had my head in my hands going, no, 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 that's <laughs> not the point. Well-being is so subjective. That worked for you, mm. but it might not work for the team. And that's one of the other um, kind of pitfalls that I see leaders fall into is that they become so passionate about their own well-being. Mm. They, they uh, well-intentionedly but erroneously prescribe their well-being recipe to other people to and others. they miss the point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, can I ask, um, you've put, there's a lot of people, thousands of leaders, as I said in, in the introduction, a thousand, thousands of leaders who've been through uh, your wellbeing survey. Can you share with us some of the things that you're, you're finding of late, what the data's telling you? Yeah, well, a big picture, the data would just be really confirming the one in five, three in five, and the one in five. Right. If you, so if we think about well-being as being um, sort of on a continuum, mm -hmm. so the data would show um, really a reinforcement of my earlier comments. You've got that breakdown in the data. You've got the breakdown right. in the data. And mm -hmm. that, that middle uh, or frozen majority, however it is we want to refer to them, but there are a significant number of people who are uh, calling out preclinical signs of low well-being, but they are being offset to a degree by some things that are really positive in their life. And that is kind of how it works. So a typical profile, Renee, might be a senior leader who says, you know, I love what I'm doing. I'm really engaged in my job. I find it really interesting and I'm really committed and I like the organisation that I'm working with. So there's a lot going well. And that really is very supportive. That's the idea of a well-being asset, something that's enhancing their level of well-being. And yet when you, you, if you pursue that conversation with the individual then, and maybe ask a question about, well, what will happen if you change nothing about your well-being habits at all? You love this job and it's really interesting and engaging and stimulating, how will life be for you two, three, five years from now? And often that then makes them pause and think, well, you know, five years from now, my kids are going to be this age. Mm. I'm probably another, you know, five to 10 kilos heavier. That probably puts me at risk of some diabetes or heart rate issue or heart health issues. Um, God, maybe I'll be divorced because I haven't been paying attention to my, you know, loving partner mm. sufficiently. So there can be lots of things that are going well that if we focus on them to the exclusion of the habits and patterns that are potentially detractors, that's what we're seeing coming through in our data as being of concern. So it's like a short-term versus long-term. Right. Um, we quite often talk about well-being as being a bit like an insurance policy. Mm. You've got to pay into it um, knowing that you're doing something good for the future. Some of the stats that we've got around the ways in which people are, sorry, I'm losing my voice here, talking about well-being. Um, some of the stats are around 80% of senior professionals feeling that their concentration is compromised by competing demands for their attention. 75% of them feel that they're pulled in too many different directions in their roles. And um, drowning in red tape 
uh, high levels of self-doubt. Now, <clears throat> these individuals aren't saying that they have low well-being. They're saying that there's many things going well. But when that level of self-doubt and being distracted and overwhelmed are occurring at the level that we're seeing them occur, then I worry about what that looks like over the longer term. You've worked with thousands of leaders who've been through your wellbeing tool. What is the data showing? Um, I love a bit of data, yes. We've got a few. Um, So I have analysed 330,000 items um, which have come from uh, several thousand leaders, mostly in Australia, but across the globe. And they're in professional or senior leadership roles. And what that data tells us is that, much like I was saying earlier at the start of our conversation, Renee, um, you know, most people are not uh, unwell. We um, don't have huge high levels of anxiety and depression uh, being reported. Um, But most people are not flourishing and, and thriving and firing on all cylinders. What we see is the majority of people reporting quite concerning um, uh, experiences and behaviours which if they play out without change over the long term, I worry for their well-being over the long term. So for example, um, out of our population, 80% of leaders say that their ability to concentrate is compromised by competing demands for their attention. 75% feel pulled in too many different directions in their roles. 63% feel that they're at risk of developing burnout. And, you know, just as a quick aside on that, in the era of, you know, increased governance and risk management, you know, we should be really, really worried about burnout because when people are burnt out, the incidence of bad behaviour or poor behaviour skyrockets. It's where we see poor judgment. Um, People stop caring about the decisions they're making. They start behaving in very um, uncivil, rude, aggressive ways with one another. Those those are some of the sort of behavioural signs. So 63% of senior leaders and professionals say that they um, sometimes, usually or always feel at risk of burnout, I I think we have to take that very seriously. They're not saying they are burnt out, but that there is a risk of it. Um, We've got 60% of people saying that they feel stressed and anxious whilst at work and the same numbers um, feeling prone to very high levels of self-doubt. And I could go on, there's more around sleep and toxicity of relationships, politics in the workplace, so on and so forth. But it makes me feel that um, we've got human beings who are experiencing work and life somewhat as a bit of a pressure cooker and it's a question about when is it going to blow. And when we consider all that data and knowing that our um, our listeners today will often be those who are passionate about coaching, uh, often coaching themselves and working with leaders every day, what do you see is the coach's responsibility in all of this? I guess it's similar to what we would say the coach's responsibility is in a lot of areas. So it's to play that dual role of both being supportive and simultaneously challenging. So with respect to well-being, if I get a little bit more specific, I think, you know, there are questions around uh, what is the individual that you're working with in the coaching engagement? What are they doing to support or detract from their own well-being? So we're your job as a coach is in part to uphold um, 
uh, or hold them to account for taking responsibility for their own well-being. Now, they may be working in a, in a bad system, in a bad workplace with a bad boss and a bad team, but there are still some things and some choices that they have open to them. And so the coach could really be focusing on those. So you put the coaches to help the individual put their well-being front and centre of their choices and and explore the link between their well-being and their performance. And then I think um, over and above holding the individual to account and gently um, encouraging them to... Uh, examine the way that they're leading their life uh, in the context of their well-being. Once they've done that, I think it's also about um, uh, encouraging uh, the leader to think about how they show up having an impact on other people's well-being. So that contagion effect that we mm. mentioned earlier. And when they're doing that, the stage after that, because hopefully they're really converted to the idea that well-being is, is not a trade-off for successful performance, but it's an enabler of sustainable high performance. And when, when they've got that message, then they're in a position of really being able to sort of act as, a, as, a, as an influencer at the systemic level. So, so we, in, in the work that we do, we talk about um, helping leaders develop well-being and a culture of well-being. So developing a capability around enabling well-being. And we have four things that are our catch cry. We talk about them being able to learn it. Um, we talk about, and so, so educating them, just in, in the way that we've been talking today about what well-being is and it's multidimensional and subjective and it ebbs and it flows and it's more than the absence of ill health. All of those things, really sort of pulling your leaders together and having that conversation with them. Um, so once they've 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 learned it, live it, which is where we really sit down, and it's where we would use our global leadership wellbeing survey, the GLWS, and we'd sit down and we'd take them through 121 questions. They would really scrutinise the factors that are enhancing and detracting from their own wellbeing, and they get a really sort of forensic level understanding of what it is. Um, uh, well, it's an, an, an audit for themselves. And once they've lived that and they've really developed their own sort of self-awareness around the factors enhancing and detracting from their own well-being, then they're in a position to lead it for other people. But if you go too soon to trying to get people to lead it before they've learned it and lived it, then I think that that's part of the reason why we see comparatively low levels of uptake on things like well-being programs. And it's why they're staying in the sort of OH and HES and medical space as opposed to moving into or being integral to leadership. So uh, learn it, live it, lead it. And the stage after leading it with their teams is to then embed it within organisations and really be that sort of power horse for systemic change. So going back to the apples in the barrel, they're really in a position, having you know looked at their own apple, polished it up, helped other people polish up their apples. That embedded place is is working at the systemic level. So Audrey, as we come to to a close, there's been some great insights and tips peppered throughout what you've shared today. I just wondered if there's any final advice you'd give to to coaches. Thanks, Renata. I've enjoyed this immensely. Uh, final advice. Um, there's two things I think I would suggest. One is 
don't leave a discussion about well-being until the person that you're coaching is heading on their way to being the one in five. Remember, well-being is for five and five. And so well-being should be a feature of every single coaching relationship, not just the coaching briefs that are around. I've got somebody who needs to build their resilience or who's stressed or who isn't very well. So make it front and center. So that's point one. And the second sort of final tip I'd give is um, don't be a moldy strawberry or, a, or an unpolished apple. Look after yourself. Um, it sounds obvious, but it's hard to do. Great. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. We hope you liked today's episode. If you'd like to get the next episode automatically, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. Please leave your feedback, questions, and a five-star review. Share this podcast with whoever you think would benefit from the topics we cover. Thank you to our hosts and special guests for the great insights gained in today's episode.